everything in the Gospel of John has led to this moment. The, the climactic moment, in fact, of all of redemptive history. In the sort of biographical scope, I believe it was right after the first of this year, calendar year, that we began the portion of the Gospel of John that deals with his last night of his earthly ministry way back in John 13. Now here on this second to last Sunday in July, we come to the cross itself. Through the wee hours of the morning, Jesus has been shuffled back and forth through a series of, of illegal trials. Illegal in many cases in that they were conducted at night. The Jews were forbidden to do that. Illegal in that there were paid witnesses and made up charges. Illegal in that the, the, the weak-willed but politically pragmatic governor of the province of Judea, Pilate, has declared Jesus innocent publicly at least three and perhaps as many as six times if you harmonize all of the gospel accounts. He has repeatedly stated Jesus is innocent. There's no fault to be found in him. And yet at the end, he falls prey to blackmail. His own weakness as a leader uh, causes the Jewish leaders to be able to, to sort of put a crowbar on his decision-making, a metaphorical one to be sure, but their final point of leverage, as Pastor Mark pointed out last week, is to, is to say to Pilate, his claims to kingship make him treasonous. And if you don't deal with treason against Rome in the way you're supposed to, then, then we will report to your Roman overlords that the province of Judea is a place where one can get away with treason. You are no friend of Caesar. <clears throat> and so Pilate, weak, capitulating, a victim of blackmail, pronounces upon Jesus that sentence which the Jewish authorities could not, the sentence of crucifixion. The Jews could execute, we see it not long into the book of Acts as they stoned Stephen to death, but they could not crucify. That method was in the hands of the Roman Empire exclusively if a territory was under Roman rule as the province of Judea, which we would call the nation of Israel, was. I'm going to look at the passage this morning from John 19, 16 down to verse 30. I'm going to take it in chunks as we go. So if I may, Roman numeral one, the sign. What an irony it is that through the Gospel of John, John has spoken of these, these signpost miracles, beginning with the, the water into wine at the wedding of Cana, all the way back toward the beginning of the Gospel, and culminating in the resurrection of Lazarus, these seven signpost miracles that underscore the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Savior, Jesus is the Son of God, and here at the end, he is crucified under a sign a literal placard. 
verses 16 through 22. So he, Pilate, delivered him, Jesus, over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, verse 17, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. It would not have been unusual to have a sign describing the crime for which the crucifixion victim was being crucified. So the Jewish leaders said, don't, don't label him as our king. Spell out the charge that his claim was that he was king. Pilate responded, what I have written, I have written. So much in that paragraph but let me focus on principally what that paragraph principles are. We could speak of the two robbers on the cross. We could speak of the, the mechanics of crucifixion. But those aren't where John, whose gospel we're studying, have placed his emphasis. John places first his emphasis on Pilate's sarcastic dig. See, Pilate's ticked. Through the course of the night, he's declared Jesus innocent multiple times and it hasn't mattered. As ineffective and weak as he was, Pilate is not accustomed to pronouncing judgment and having his pronouncement come to mean nothing. He's innocent, I find no fault. There's nothing he's done that's wrong. And yet now Jesus is crucified. His wife, has pressured him, don't do it, don't have anything to do with this guy, I'm having nightmares about him. The Jewish leadership have blackmailed him into taking the course of action that he has taken. He's chafed. He's not happy. And so at the end, he takes this, this customary act, this, this creation of a placard to hang on the cross that describes the criminal offense of the one there being executed. And he says, ah, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. He's no friend of Jesus. This is certainly not an affirmation. It's a cheap shot back at the Jewish leaders with whom he is upset. And yet, and yet, it is utterly accurate. It is a declaration of the identity of Christ in multiple languages. It leans forward 
to the soon coming day of Pentecost. It leans forward to the Great Commission where we are to take the gospel across geographic and linguistic barriers to the ends of the earth. He is king of the Jews. In fact, he's king of kings and lord of lords. He, he begins as at least king of the Jews. And his mission goes to the ends of the earth. So not only in Pilate's sarcastic dig, we see letter B, God's sovereign demonstration. And by the way, the point of John's unfolding of the gospel account is not biomedical detail on the horrific nature of crucifixion. None of the four gospels go into great graphic biomedical autopsy detail on what it is to die by crucifixion. We know about crucifixion. There is, I would argue, a place in scripture where the physiological impact of crucifixion is spelled out in some incredible detail, but it was written 1,000 years before the death of Christ at a time when no culture on earth was doing crucifixion. More on that in a minute. The issue of the crucifixion is not first and foremost the horrors that Jesus is enduring physiologically, though they were awful. It is not pity for Jesus we should see when we look to the cross but pity for us from Jesus that he would endure what he endured. Roman numeral two, the soldiers, verses 23 and 24. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, this Roman crucifixion detail, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic, the innermost garment. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but let's cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, and this is Psalm 22:18. they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. We see in this moment, letter A, first on, on your outline, letter A, the soldier's wickedness. The soldier's wickedness. There's such a, a dramatic sort of, of, of juxtaposition, a tension between, for these Roman soldiers working this crucifixion detail, it was their job, they were an execution detail. Crucifixion was not super commonplace, but it was certainly not unheard of. To, to execute the lowest forms of criminal in the Roman Empire. And so there would have been a standing execution detail in a city the size of Jerusalem. For these men, it was just a day at work. It's just, what, what are we, how many do we have today? I believe we've got three. Okay, gear up. The reality of that moment, however, is that these soldiers are committing history's single most evil and vile act. The worst thing ever done. 
Pastor Russell, how can you, how can you say that? History is, is full of horrific, horrific, evil acts. You're right. But remember, when we speak of innocent people, when we speak of, for example, the innocent lives of the unborn, or we speak of the victims of crimes, the, 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 the guilty are doing things to the innocent, we use the word innocent a lot. We always, however, if we're thinking biblically, we always mean it in relative terms. That if you get held up at gunpoint by a mugger, there's the guilty person and the innocent person in that interaction. But if we think Theologically, if we think biblically, if we think ultimately, then Jesus is the only innocent person to have ever lived. This is the only time in history where we see the death of the truly and ultimately innocent. The only human being who did not deserve death here being put to death. in the normal course of a normal day for those who did it. What's the takeaway from that? It's easy to think of our sin in terms of, of big, epic, momentous things. I bet, I bet, though you may have, it's a big room with a lot of people in it, I bet you've never willfully taken another human life. At least I bet most of you haven't. Setting aside time of war. I bet most of you have never sold fentanyl to a fifth grader. And so the temptation is... Well, you know, I, I, I'm probably not all that bad. Your and my ingratitude for the act of breathing since we woke up this morning, that sin of ingratitude is sufficient to condemn you and me to hell forever. The fact that right now you sit in a room taking advantage of God's gravity without thanking him for it explicitly is sufficient sin to send you to hell forever. We are in everything and for everything to give thanks and I suspect this morning as your digestive tract is bopping along doing the things it does, you have not been thankful for that directly this morning. That sin is sufficient to send you to hell. The last time I made statements like this, I got a sweet note, anonymous from someone in our congregation who said, Pastor Russell, you truly don't believe that those kinds of minor sins would send somebody to hell. I wish I had the person's name, I would respond, and maybe I am responding. How sad for you that you believe there is such a thing as minor sin. You have failed to understand what the word of God says about the fallenness of man and the holiness of God. If you think there are sins that are so minor, they're not worth an eternal sentence in hell. You do not, you may be the recipient of grace, but you do not understand it and you do not value it highly enough if you think Christ died for the sinners over there and not the sinner right here. Even while you're a very nice person. These soldiers on a normal day at the office committed the most evil act that's ever been committed. And you litter your days with the weight of your depravity, evil, and sin. And thus, 
are in need of a savior. The soldier's wickedness. But the savior's will. Even as they fulfill this little drama with his, with his clothes there at the foot of the cross, they play out a scene from Psalm 22. They didn't know anything about Psalm 22. They certainly didn't say, what does Psalm 22 say we're supposed to do next? I don't know, let me check. I'll be looking at Psalm 22 uh, when I record Beyond the Notes this week. The most detailed, graphic, biomedically explicit account of the crucifixion in the Word of God was written 1,000 years before the cross in Psalm 22. Here, Psalm 22, 18 describes their behavior and reminds us that what's going on at the cross is the fulfillment of a plan from eternity past. As God the Father expends his wrath on God the Son on behalf of God's redeemed people. Roman numeral three, the Son. Jesus is on the cross. Horrible wounds have been inflicted. Death is coming. You know, if I get an ingrown toenail, the world basically stops turning. Right? If I get a splinto in my little finger, nothing matters till that is resolved. If I'm essentially not getting my way in a way that is causing me discomfort or pain, nothing's gonna move till that gets fixed because I'm a baby and I'm selfish. Probably the only one in the room that suffers that particular character flaw. Or not. Here, the horrifically wounded Jesus on his way to death, enduring the wrath of the Father, looks down from the cross and sees something that requires his compassionate attention. Verses 25 through 27. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. Four women. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, that is a reference in the Gospel of John to the author, John the Apostle, that's how he refers to himself, not by name, but by describing himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So when Jesus saw those four women and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Now he doesn't mean to say, Mary, look up here at me. She was there doing that. He's indicating the Apostle John. See, Joseph doesn't appear in any of the Gospels. His earthly father, Joseph, doesn't appear in any of the Gospels past the time 
where Jesus is a very young teenager. By the time we encounter the adult Jesus, there's no mention of Joseph. He's, he's passed away. Jesus had younger half-brothers, the biological children of Mary and Joseph, but at this moment, none of them are saved. So none of them are spiritually trustworthy as of yet. Jesus, being the oldest son, would bear responsibility to see to his mom. And in this moment of physical and spiritual agony, his heart goes out to his love for and responsibility to his mom. Woman, he indicates John, look to your son. Then he says to John, to the disciple, behold your mother. So there we see the love of the son, letter A on your outline, but we also here see the love of a servant. John, mama's now your responsibility. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Love for Jesus. Love for Jesus is obedience to Jesus. Love for Jesus is obedience to Jesus. John, I got an assignment for you. Lord, I'll do it. My life as a follower of Christ is a blank check given back to him to do whatever he wills. The surest foundation for your confidence, my born-again friend, the surest foundation for your confidence that you know him is that you love him. And that love for him shows up in your passion to obey him. Somehow, somewhere, there has leaked in this ridiculous idea that we can have Jesus as our personal savior, but not follow him as our Lord. That is preposterous. He is savior for those over whom he is Lord. John, do this. And from that moment he did. Do we follow Jesus perfectly? No. <clears throat> but we follow him passionately or we're not his. We're not his. Salvation is in all cases. Salvation that has actually occurred is in all cases both permanent and transformative. And if your basis this morning, if I were to ask you in an unguarded moment where you didn't know the question was, was a bit of a pop quiz, if I were to ask you in an unguarded moment, how do you know that you're born again? And the best you've got is a historical narrative of some ritual prayer you re recited when you were 11 or some postcard you filled out when you were 15 or some baptism you had when you were 20. And that is the basis of your salvation. You look back on those historical deeds of yours as the basis of your salvation. I would push a little, 
But if that is what you truly believe to be the foundation of your eternal security, I would fear for your soul. Praise God for those historical realities. I know when I was saved, and I'm glad I know. But today I know that I am saved because there is in me this, this utterly foreign, completely not me, passion to obey Jesus. I want to honor Christ. And that cannot have come from me. I'm too corrupt, left to my own devices. I love him. I obey him. He's my Lord. Thus, he's my Savior. In the simplistic little act of John taking on Mary, what a truth is illustrated. Finally, Roman 4, the sacrifice. Verses 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received that sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The only unjust death to ever happen. The wages of sin is death and Jesus never sinned. In that moment on the cross, if I had all the time you and I have left on this earth, I could not adequately plumb, adequately plumb the depths of all that death accomplished. but I offer four things. First, he fulfilled the prophets. I've alluded to Psalm 22. If you have not of late revisited Psalm 22, I'll walk you through some of it. I'll be on the notes this week if you track on our podcast. Isaiah 53, these, these amazingly detailed descriptions of the crucifixion written. The Psalm, a thousand years. Isaiah, several hundred years before the death of Christ. If you have Jewish friends, God has planted in their Bible, what you would call the Old Testament, these amazing gospel tracts that describe both the details and the purpose of Christ's death on the cross. Jesus fulfilled the prophets. He fulfilled the law, Hebrews 10, verses 8 through 14. Hebrews 10, verses 8 through 14. Christ has fulfilled the law. When he said above, and we jump in in verse 8 of Hebrews 10, and he's just finished quoting Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. He paraphrases again. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. And then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first, that is the behavioral overhead of the ceremonial law, in order to establish the second, that is his gracious will. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 
And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Treasure this verse, Hebrews 10, 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Remember what I've told you repeatedly that real salvation Salvation that results in eternity in heaven is always transformational and always permanent. You have both those truths side by side in that same verse. Salvation is always permanent in that he has perfect, he has perfected for all time. And it's transformational. Whom has he perfected? Those who are being sanctified, transformed. He fulfilled the prophets, he fulfilled the law, letter C, he fulfilled the Father's justice. Romans chapter three, verses 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, demanding the penalty of sin and the justifier providing for his own demands. For the one who has faith in Jesus. In Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14, speaking to believers, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And of course, he fulfilled the price of love. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Thus, in conclusion, his loving sacrifice is an invitation. Come to Jesus and live. Turn from your sin. Trust him by faith. Stop this futile business of either ignoring issues of eternity or thinking you can achieve into that on your own. Being good will never be good enough. 
you have an invitation, but it is also a confrontation. The gospel is an invitation, but the gospel is also a confrontation. You come to a confrontive moment. Live forever in Christ or suffer forever for your sin. I've uh, given you three scriptures there. The first one where I say 1 Thessalonians is supposed to be 2 Thessalonians. I wish I could blame that typo on somebody else, but I had it wrong all the way back to my own handwritten notes. So correct me if you would, like you would be shy about correcting me. Correct me if you would. I mean to cite 2 Thessalonians 1 verses 5 through 9. Let me just start in verse, uh, in verse eight, in the middle of the sentence there for the sake of a moment of time. He speaks of those who will face hell and what he writes is taking vengeance, inflaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ will be the targets of his fiery vengeance. Those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. It is not fashionable in this 21st century to concede the truth that the word of God teaches that the fate of those who die outside of Christ is an eternally aware, consciously painful, eternal fire. But that is precisely what the word of God teaches. If hell is not a place of eternal punishment, God is a liar and the gospel itself ought not be trusted. For in the same word where he describes for us that salvation, he describes for us that from which we are saved. John 3, 19. We were in John 3 a moment ago. Come down a couple of verses to John 3, 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. I conclude with this question from Hebrews 2.30. Hebrews chapter two, verse three. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard. How shall we escape if we neglect it? God has made a way of escape from the just, wrathful penalty that all mankind deserves. If you've never trusted Jesus, you're sitting in a Sunday morning worship service, odds are you're not utterly apathetic about the 
matter of eternity. It may be that you're here because someone who has enough influence over you has dragged you in here kicking and screaming. If so, you should be thankful for that person, I suppose. But for you, the gospel is not mere invitation. It is also confrontation, but it is not mere confrontation. It is also gracious invitation. Come to Jesus and live forever. Turn from your sin, trust Jesus, and live forever. And if you want to write us a note on a Connect card, that you want to talk more about that, if you want to find me after the service, look at me, I ain't hard to find. I'll be right down in here. If you already know Jesus and somehow the cross has become mere background in your life, bring it forward. Live in the blessed influence of its shadow on your life. Follow Jesus more passionately than you ever have. Love him as he has described himself to be. Thus love his word more than you ever have. Do not neglect this great salvation.